Hey friends, welcome to the Addiction Nutritionist Podcast. I'm Kelly Miller, nutrition therapist, health and wellness recovery coach, and certified nutrition nerd. On this podcast, we talk about all things health and wellness and recovery. We talk about pause and nutrition for post-acute withdrawal syndrome. We talk about biochemical repair and amino acid therapy. We even get into food addiction. We want this platform to be your number one resource for creating health and wellness and recovery so you can stop self-sabotaging habits for good. If you're tired of feeling stuck and you're ready to take action and learn how to build healthy habits and recovery, this podcast is for you. When you recover well, there's just no oxygen for addiction to survive. Let's create wellness together and start today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Addiction Nutritionist podcast. I have a very special guest with me today who happens to be extremely knowledgeable in a subject that I think is going to be really useful to our listeners. She specializes in something called ARFID, and I'm going to read her official bio in a minute. But the reason that I think this is going to translate so well is because she really works with individuals to help them expand their palate. So if somebody is listening today that feels like they're a picky eater, they feel like they have a lot of sensory issues around food and they want to eat healthier, but they just can't figure out how to do that. Becky's going to share a lot of strategies uh, with us today that work really well for her clients, but can be easily used by anybody that's looking to add more nutrient-dense foods to their diet and different strategies you can use to help you do that in a really systematic way that's super efficient and backed by a ton of science. But before we do that, we're going to share the food sponsor today, which is Beets. Uh, My friend Becky here chose Beets. I'm so excited because Beets has a number of amazing benefits. Um, And so I'm going to share just a few of those with you today before we jump into the bio. So I think a lot of people actually know about beets because you have sort of seen an explosion of them on the, on the TV in the last five years where there are all these different supplements and powders and ways that you can consume them. If you're not a big beet eater, because it's so beneficial for blood pressure, there's a lot of science behind beets helping to lower blood pressure, which is an issue for a lot of folks. The reason for that is because it has nitrates in it, which converts to nitric oxide, which is a molecule that helps to dilate our blood vessels. So it can sort of relax that pressure that our blood vessels are always feeling and help to reduce blood pressure in that way. One of the reasons why this is so important for for mental health, for preventing cognitive decline, for just living in this super busy world that we live in is because when you consume foods like beets that has these nitrites in it, it actually increases blood flow to the prefrontal cortex, which is the front part of our brain that we use for working, for concentration, for having working memory, for being able to concentrate on a tough project and move from one task to the next. So, and we talk about the prefrontal cortex a lot on this uh, podcast or, or, or if you're working with me, because that's the part of the brain we need to help us stay in recovery. That's where we work our recovery plan. So it's so important. Um, but beets also have a lot of folate. It's a folate rich food. We talk about folate a lot here because that is a critical cofactor also known as a nutrient that helps us to produce serotonin. So it has antidepressant effects. Um, and so we hear about spinach and leafy greens having a lot of folate, but so does beets and you can eat the greens of beets too. I think a lot of people just eat the beets, but they forget about the beet greens, which are so super nutritious. Um, Also, there's potassium in there, which also helps lower blood pressure. Beets can be great um, for uh, supporting heart health. They're known to reduce inflammation, which is another key factor in fighting off depression. 
Um, and I did find a study that showed that just eight and a half ounces of beet juice individuals drank every day over the course of two weeks that dramatically dropped biochemical markers uh, for CRP and TNF alpha, which are two biomarkers that indicate inflammation. So in this study, you know, it was a short study, but over the course of two weeks, just eight and a half ounces of beet juice a day dramatically lowered those two markers for inflammation, which is so important for brain health. It's important for longevity and preventing chronic disease. Um, there's anti-cancer benefits to beets. It contains a component called betaine, which is really good for digestion and lowering inflammation. And then the last thing I'll say about it is we've talked about this flavonoid before, but it also has the camphorol flavonoid in it, which is really great for people who are trying to uh, quit cannabis or marijuana because this flavonoid inhibits the enzyme activity that degrades our own anandamide. Anandamide is that bliss chemical that we get from smoking marijuana but we also make it on our own. We do not need to smoke marijuana to get that bliss chemical. Our body makes it. And when we consume foods like beets that have this flavonoid in it, it reduces that enzyme activity degrading our own bliss so we can experience it to a higher degree and for a longer period of time. So you probably knew all of that about beets, right, Becky? <laughs> I learned some new things then today. I'm yeah. Here. What's uh, your favorite way to consume beets? So I am going to present a few ways I like beets because okay. I would do with any of our clients. You taste a food. So beets have a big flavor, right? Mm -hmm. I would describe that as a big flavor. Mm -hmm. So finding a way you can enjoy beets is what, how, how would I would help a client. So I enjoy beets um, cubed up with potatoes and onions and roasted like roasted potatoes with rosemary. That's mm. the oven. Um, and then the potatoes and rosemary add flavor to the rooty flavor that beets have on mm -hmm. it. I also love it as a juice with some ginger and like apple juice. So the apples give it a little more sweetness and the ginger gives it some spice. So that's a great way to have beets. And then I also like them like pickled and cubed up on my salad with like goat cheese, like a beet goat cheese salad. Mm. So lots of different ways you can enjoy beets. Some people make just like bake them like a potato with some butter. Uh -huh. For me, that it tastes earthy. Yeah. <laughs> too earthy, but so you can enjoy beets lots of different ways. I love your idea of with the potatoes and the rosemary. Rosemary is uh, one of my most favorite things in the world. So much so that if I ever had a daughter, which I didn't, I only had sons. I had decided I was going to name her Rosemary. <laughs> I love Rosemary. So, and I haven't tried it in that way with the potatoes. So that sounds, that sounds really good. I am not a big beet eater. I will consume it if it's kind of already in a dish. I actually consume it through supplement form. Um, and I use Empirical Labs Beet Flow, which I'll put a link to in the show notes if, if you're also not a big beet eater. But you may find that through using some of Becky's strategies today, you might be able to include beets in your food um, and on your salads. One way mm -hmm. that I get my my family eats them. They uh -huh. don't realize they're eating them. If you cube beets, like if you, they're frozen because my parents grow them, right? So we peel them, cube them and freeze them. So they're uh -huh. ready to go. If you put it in spaghetti sauce or like a red chili, uh -huh. the texture of the tomato, and it takes on the flavor of the spaghetti sauce or the chili, 
like red. Oh, that's tomato. fascinating. So they never taste a difference. Like a tomato and it gives it a beautiful color and makes it a little bit sweeter. It adds sweetness. Okay. So yeah. See, this is why you're the master of this. Right. That comes out a more natural sugar than like corn syrup. It's beet sugar. Um, yeah. It makes it that's, sweet. So, that's anyway, amazing. Thank you for throwing that out there. That's such a good tip. Um, okay. I'm going to read Becky's bio and we're going to get into a amazing conversation about what is ARFID and all the different strategies um, related to it. So Becky's enjoyed practicing as an SLP, which is a speech language pathologist and feeding specialist for over 23 years, working alongside families to create a positive mealtime experience and lifelong success with eating is a passion of hers. Becky has extensive experience working alongside children with eosinophilic esophagitis, I hope I pronounced that right. Pediatric feeding disorder, ARFID, autism, and gastrointestinal disorders. She has a unique understanding of how GI pain and discomfort affects feeding, including different methodologies and feeding treatment for babies all the way through teens. Her years of practice in early intervention, home health, private practice, outpatient feeding clinics, and multidisciplinary care teams has provided Becky with an understanding of the dynamic relationship between a child or teen and their caregivers. She embraces a whole person approach to feeding, understanding that eating takes integration of all systems. Oh, I love that. And I can't wait to talk about that more. Becky's a Colorado native and lives in Denver with her husband, adult children, and dogs. She enjoys hiking, skiing, playing games, and gardening. And if I didn't mention it, Becky's one of my closest friends on the planet. So I feel very blessed to have such a knowledgeable person uh, that I get to consult with all the time because I'm always reaching out like, hey, I have a question about this or that. And she gives me such great feedback. So, okay. I feel like there's people out there. They're going to be like, she keeps saying ARFID. What is ARFID and why are we talking about this? So can you give us, um, you know, some background on what is ARFID? I know it's a slightly newer diagnosis in the DSM. You know, what is it? What are the three distinguishing factors? Cause you shared with that a little bit, um, in our pre-call and then I'll, I'll kind of, uh, um, share why I think this is going to translate to a much larger audience. Oh, sure. So ARFID hasn't came into the medical world in 2013. So it's only been an official diagnosis for 10 years, which is not very long given, you know, the history of medical diagnoses. So ARFID stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And so it is just defined as a pattern of eating with limited variety and volume but also associated with either medical or psychological consequences due to that limited variety. Um, there needs to be significant weight or growth concerns or nutritional deficiencies. You do not have to be underweight to have ARFID, but you're nutritionally deficient because of the variety of food you're eating um, or psychological impairment, like infecting your social life. You can't go eat with people or eating by yourself or that's difficult for you for some patients with ARFID. So it must have those um, pieces to it. It cannot, it's not anorexia because you don't, you're not worried about body image. Mm. They can look the same where your intake is small, but your goal is not to lose weight. It's mm -hmm. just eating food because of, um, we'll talk about those maintaining mechanisms. Um, you, it can be associated with other diagnoses like anxiety or celiac disease or but the feeding problem must exceed what would be expected for that in, in and in itself. 
So you can have anxiety, but you can have anxiety and ARFID because the feeding exceeds what would be expected for someone with generalized anxiety. So it's kind of a gray line there, it gets a little sticky, but um, that's why often my clients, I'll just say they have ARFID light because they don't have an official diagnosis, but it sure looks a whole lot like ARFID, right? Mm, okay. Um, so the three maintaining mechanisms, and a person may have one up to all three of these, um, appetite or lack of appetite or lack of just interest in food. Like for me, eating is rewarding. I enjoy food and I enjoy the flavor of it and I enjoy the way it, feel, it makes my stomach feel, right? Mm -hmm. so someone else may not have that um, feeling. So lack of appetite or lack of interest in food. Um, sense, the sensory properties of food might be overwhelming. So the sensory um, difficulties with food or the third maintaining mechanism is fear of aversive consequences. And this is usually due to a history of pain or discomfort so that GI issues with food or like a choking incident. Someone might choke on food and then decide to cutting all foods and only drinking liquids. And mm. you might have a great fear over. So those are the three maintaining, and the term is maintaining mechanisms for our food. Okay. Let me ask some follow-up questions about that. So the first one is lack of appetite. And this is not necessarily due to like the side effect of a medication or they're not it's like a some other medical issue, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're not consciously suppressing their appetite. They may be subconsciously suppressing it. And then it sort of turns into just this sensation that I'm just not hungry. Yeah. Or the brain is never sent, stop sending the signal their brain doesn't send the hunger signal. Yep. Okay. Okay. If you ignore eating for a while, it will just stop sending it because you're not answering the call. Right. Okay. Exactly. And so I, I want to expand on that for just a minute, because this is a primary example of why I wanted to talk about this throughout the years. I have had so many clients when we talk about the importance of breakfast a long time ago, you used to hear breakfast was the most important meal of the day. And then fasting came along as this explosion onto the scene of everyone wanted to try it. And I've said this before, there's therapeutic benefits to fasting, but for most people, you don't necessarily have to skip breakfast. And if you're in recovery, you should probably eat it. But I hear exactly what you say where people go, but I'm just not hungry. I'm just not hungry. And I try to, um, I try to impart the wisdom on them or share the science with them exactly of what you just said. If you've fallen into the habit, kind of regardless of what the reason is, if you've fallen into the habit of ignoring those hunger signals, when they pop up, eventually the brain stops sending that signal. Right. Yeah. So it's, that's a difficult one to retrain because you are eating on a schedule, even though you maybe don't feel like it, mm. it's to retrain your metabolism. So how would you do that? But you would have eat something. You're not ignoring when you get up in the morning. I'm not waiting till one o'clock and eat. I know that you don't feel hungry till three in the afternoon. Some of my um, mm -hmm. clients, teenage boys, especially, right? Oh, teenage um, boys. Mm -hmm. But we are setting alarm on our phone because our brain's not going to tell us. We're just going to forget. We're going to get busy. When the alarm goes off, we're going to eat a designated amount. Even if it's this, we're going to start small. Mm -hmm. half a of spoonful of bar. peanut butter or something uh, right? yeah, two ounces of a drink something mm -hmm. and so it'll over time your your body will get into new circadian rhythm right mm -hmm. 
How long do you think it would take if you started that retraining process for your body to kick in and start recognizing that new habit and go, okay, I'm going to start increasing my hunger signals a little bit. So that I think is going to be pretty client specific if, and how long standing it's been, right? Yeah. If mm-hmm. you were eating well, you had a choking incident, ended up with some ARFID, you could retrain it pretty quick, right? Mm. Yeah. Some of my clients have been this doing the same thing for 15 years. Mm. It take a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, and then let's talk more about that second maintaining mechanism, the sensory issues. What are the sensory issues involved? And when we talked about this for before you mentioned one that I'm not sure I'd ever heard of before. So I think it's an important one to bring up. So I'm going to start with eating is one of the most difficult tasks because it incorporates every sensory system in your body, right? Mm-hmm. So for someone, they would need to have a really good core support to help um, support the, all the fine motor skills of chewing and self-eating and also the core support to support the organs on the inside, right? So you got your font gross motor skills are important. Mm-hmm. Your fine motor skills of chewing, swallowing, um, self-feeding, right? And we do those instantly, but our brain is using, is sending signals throughout the whole meal to do all of these things, right? Um, and then you have your smell, Mm-hmm. Um, which associate, closest associates to taste, right? Mm-hmm. And then taste, and then the sensory of touch. So how it's feeling on my hands, how it's feeling in my mouth, how it's feeling as I it goes down my esophagus into my stomach. Mm-hmm. And, and what that, did you call that? That leads into a term we call interoception. So that's a sensory system that we don't often think about or teach our young kids about the interoception is the feeling and understanding of what's going on inside of my body. Like uh, rapid satiation or rapid satiety is an interoceptive, like you getting the full too quick. And that that's a, a real thing. Like I eat a quarter of a granola bar, but now I'm full. Well, you're not really full. <laughs> you're feeling like you're full, right? Or, um, discomfort when I'm swallowing because I'm not used to swallowing textures. So I'm interpreting it as discomfort, but it's actually just feeling a swallow. You just made a great point. You said, this is something we don't really teach our kids about the interoception. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think that, because of course you, you can remember having little kids or you've been around little kids. You're talking about how does this taste? How does this smell? How does this feel? We're kind of always talking to kids about sensations but it's only been in the last few years, I feel like they're starting to teach like mindfulness in school and that kind of the concept of like notice and name. But when, but when I heard you say interoception and how does the food actually feel? I had never thought about that outside of just when you drink something warm and you can kind of feel it going down like your thoracic cavity. Um, but that's fascinating. Do you think that that's something we should really start incorporating with kids so that they can feel more closely connected to the eating experience? Um, yeah, I, I, I do this on a regular basis. So for me, it's pretty normal as yeah. seeing clients from like young, starting young, maybe even like toddlerish to understand the feeling between hungry and full because they mm-hmm. may not even know that feeling. So that's one of the very first interoceptive experiences minus like need the, the urgency for needing to go into the bathroom. That's uh-huh. another interoceptive early feeling, right? Um, uh-huh. control of. So I think that it's important um, 
to teach that because we want kids to um, listen to their own body, right? We want to, them to eat when they're hungry and stop when they're full. So pushing, pushing, pushing volume as a parent, which is what my generation did before is not helpful because we're not letting someone learn to listen to their body and what their body needs. Yeah. The trick is with ARFID, that signal's not, not working right. So mm -hmm. that's where we're gonna use some strategies to help get that regulated again. Hopefully. Right. And yeah, I'm glad you said that because you and I come from the clean plate generation that it was heavily pushed on us that if food was on our plate, we needed to clean our plate. And I think it's now this newer generation that we are getting more in touch with. Well, what does it actually feel like when I'm full? And that should be an okay time to stop. We actually should not be consistently pushing ourselves um, past that point of fullness. So that's awesome. Okay. So lack of appetite, sensory issues. And then the third maintaining mechanism was fear of negative consequences. But again, just to clarify, this is not negative consequences in terms of like gaining weight and what you would see with anorexia. This is totally different. So what, uh, I, I know because you've told me, but what are a couple of those situations where somebody might have fear of consequences? Of course, like the one that's not as common because it doesn't happen that often, but it does happen is like a choking incident. I've definitely mm -hmm. seen people after a choking incident and, mm -hmm. and they're afraid to eat later. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely that happens. Um, but GI pain and discomfort, when you eat something, you always get a, abdominal cramping or pain, then that can suppress appetite <laughs> and create a cycle of avoidance of foods. So that's that would be a fear of the first of consequences consequences the eosynophilic esophagitis causes inflammation in your esophagus so it's painful to swallow mm -hmm. um, it can be I don't have it but um, I imagine it's pretty painful to swallow um, mm -hmm. and it also can cause esophageal strictures where food is just getting impacted or stuck right mm -hmm. and then you have to either um, I guess the only way to describe it you have to either vomit it up or you mm -hmm. have to go get um that procedure to have a surgeon take it out. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So those, those are just some instances, reflux in little infants or even as adults, if you've ever reflexed, it burns, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so if you have a young one reflexing, they don't understand that and that pain can decrease oral intake for sure. Yeah, that could be really scary. As an adult, I've had some really, really bad reflux incidents. Um, I cannot eat quinoa anymore, which is borderline devastating to me. Um, but I have horrible reflux with quinoa and that sensation of like, oh my gosh, I'm actually going to vomit. It's horrific because it feels like it's choking you, you know? So I can imagine how scary that would be for a kid. Um, okay. So ARFID is an official diagnosis. You see people who have diagnosed ARFID or ARFID like behaviors and sort of fall on that spectrum somewhere. We talked about the three maintaining mechanisms, um, but this other piece of it that I think is really interesting too, and there's a lot of overlap here with our clientele is that typically, typically these folks are only eating certain types of foods. And you were kind of describing to me what those foods look like and some of the key factors of those foods. And I think this is really interesting. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Sure. So people with ARFID, you know, and I'm putting a blanket term, everybody I treat, I take as an individual person, right? And we take, we find out where they are baseline, where, where you are. So you can be, each, each person can be different. But in general, um, people with 
ARFID or ARFID-like feeding disorders, prefer foods that are um, white, starchy, easy on the stomach, nutrient dense, which is not necessarily in a good sense, right? Or calorie dense, energy dense is what I meant to say. Mm -hmm. So um, foods that are prepackaged are consistent because one box of Kraft mac and cheese is exactly like the next, mm -hmm. exactly like the next versus if you're going to different restaurants and eating it, it's gonna, there's gonna be variability. And fruit and vegetables are one of the most variable things because one blueberry is not the next blueberry, is not the next blueberry. Taste, texture, so everything. Mm -hmm. Same thing for most fruits and most vegetables. One carrot does not taste like the next carrot. So right. those are a little, um, one of them. So it's things, things like crackers, mm -hmm. crackers fast food, those, chicken yep. nuggets, uh, packaged bars. Uh, yeah pretty limited, a lot of crackers, starchy foods that you're easy on the stomach. And I think I heard you say it's usually like less than 10 foods. Is that always the case? Not always the case, even less than, you know, if we think, if we went, if I went through and wrote my food inventory of all the foods I would eat, it would take a long time and a lot of thinking, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I do have a pretty wide palate, but um, I'm not completely off the norm for an adult. So even I would say less than um, 25 or maybe even reaching 50 foods is not very many. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 10 foods would be a severe disorder, I would call mm, it. Okay. Yeah, the, the identifying aspects of these foods is interesting to me. You know, it's like, it's things made from like white potatoes, white flour, white sugar. Um, like you were saying, easy on the stomach, very, very consistent craft Mac and cheese is always craft Mac and cheese. And it makes me think of when kids are young. Um, and I, I was not a healthy person when my children were, were young, but they always wanted the same things. They always wanted craft Mac and cheese. They always wanted their favorite goldfish crackers or whatever it was. And so it makes me realize the importance of kind of intervening in those younger years of really trying to help your kids expand their palates at that time, you know, partially so that they don't end up with a diagnosis like ARFID, but even just moving in the direction of having those characteristics, uh, it, because we've all had that person in our life who only wants to eat at the same places or has to have the same exact kind of mayonnaise on their sandwich every time. And if it's not this kind of mayonnaise, you know, they don't want it. And you see that a lot of people don't grow out of those things and they become full grown adults and have become very, very picky eaters. And I see this a lot with people in recovery. And so this is what leads us to the strategy part of the conversation. I think some of these strategies that you've shared with me are so applicable to anybody that's just trying to expand their palate. Um, so what are some of the strategies that you, that you use to help people start moving in the direction of expanding the amounts of foods that they like? And especially I want to mention, you said fruits and vegetables. Those are foods we really want to start incorporating just for health and longevity. And I know that that's not always like the end goal with somebody who's got extreme ARFID, like you're just trying to get them to move forward. Right. Um, but a person who's kind of coming from a place of just like, Oh, I've heard people say, I don't like vegetables. They're just too bitter. So they just don't eat them. And their quote unquote vegetable is a baked potato with their dinner every night. Right. Um, okay. So yeah, let's talk about strategies. Sure. Okay. Before I dive into specific strategies, I want to kind of throw two things out there. Yeah. 
Um, that overall quote strategy, the umbrella strategy, I would say is exposure, right? Mm -hmm. Exposure to anything you're unsure about or nervous about or anxious about is what reduces the anxiety mm -hmm. in our body about it, right? Avoidance, on the other hand, if we continue to avoid our anxiety or nervousness or our unwillingness to stretch or change, it's just going to increase over time. So um, it becomes a chronic problem if you avoid. Thank you for mentioning that because we only kind of sort of touched on the, the role that anxiety plays here, but it's a major factor, right? And I want to highlight what you just said, exposure, 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 not continuing to avoid. Okay. I'll let you elaborate on all that. Well, I'm just going to run through a list and then we can talk about them. Like, yeah. and then we can dive into them a little more. So the idea of systematic desensitization, which oh, that's a big word, but it's just finding a way to interact with the new food and then increasing the progression to eating it. So when you first are interacting with or learning about or exposing yourself to a new food, I would you don't even have to eat it at first. Can I do other things and then move towards eating it? So that's the idea of systematic desensitization. Wait, other thing, if you're not eating it, other things like what, like smelling it, touching it? Okay, so for, for an adult, right? um just cooking and preparing it you're smelling it you're touching it right you're visualizing it you're feeling the texture on your hands right mm -hmm. so that would be an okay step mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. for someone that has really hyper smell um just even leaving it on the counter next to you while you're doing something else if you have a really aversive smell mm. if smells a deterrent right so mm -hmm. Exposure, exposure, exposure in whatever way you can be successful, right? So mm -hmm. exposure important. So um, other strategies are, so exposures, it could be interoceptive exposures too, right? To work on that appetite. Um, changing the way we talk and think about our food. Mm. Um, food chaining, which is finding a food you like and, and slowly changing it into a new food. <laughs> Masking. Um, helps with the sensory property of taste, especially. So we are masking the flavor that we are not sure about. And that's the language I use. You're just not sure about it yet. It's not that you don't like it. You're not sure about it yet. Um, masking the flavor to be able to consume it in a way that you like. Um, fading would be fading one into another. It's kind of like food chaining, but with textures and flavors. Um, those are several of the, um, stress. okay. Okay. So let's start breaking some of these down because this is really where the rubber hits the road. And I think that people are going to have the primary takeaways. I love the systematic desensitization, uh, desensitization. <laughs> Did I say that right? Uh, and the reason is because this is exactly what happened to me with broccoli. And so I've talked about this before, but I'm just going to touch on it. When I got married, I not sure I had ever eaten broccoli. If I had, I was pretty grossed out by it. I thought it was a freakish type of food and I didn't want anything to do with it, but I married a chef who loves broccoli. And so early in our marriage, I'll never forget. He would make broccoli almost every night. And I would just be like, "Ugh, gross. How can you eat that stuff? And he would treat me like a baby and go, I'm going to put one tiny little floret on your plate every single time we sit down to eat. And all I ask is that you eat that one. And in my, my, my intense immaturity in my early twenties, I would take that little floret and I would put it in my mouth and I would make the ew face. 
And I'm doing this just for you, you know, because I love you. And honestly, over time, I started to eat more of it. And then I started to crave it. And that blew my mind. I mean, that was even before I started to go on my own health journey due to health crisis. And that's all that was. He just continued. He was like his own little SLP, I guess, in my life where he continued to expose me to that food. And over time I found that I actually really like it. And now I have it at least once or twice a week and I love broccoli. Um, so that strategy works. <laughs> I know, you know, it works because it's backed by science and it works with your clients, but just from an adult perspective, I think that is so important. Exposure, exposure, exposure. Okay. I want to spend some time talking about this next one, changing the way we talk and think. Please give us some examples of this because this is, I think, fundamental. Yeah. So language drives your cognition and your understanding. We know that, you know, throughout your life, what your internal dialogue is going to change your behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So we, with my clients, we don't, we talk, a general rule, we talk nicely about our food, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, um, we don't have use words like gross, disgusting, I don't like like it, right? And, and there are, everybody has their preferences, right? There are some foods that I would say I don't like yet, right? Uh-huh. Right. Um, instead of saying something like that, where you can be like, that's new, that's different. I'm not sure about that yet. Or we could describe the sensory pro properties like broccoli and cauliflower when they're roasting in the oven have a very big smell. So you're like, wow, that has a really big smell. Whereas if you pick up a piece of spinach and you smell it, really no smell at all, right? Uh -huh. you describe the sensory properties of it. We're talking about um, the texture that it feels like in your, if you're not ready to put it in your mouth you know, talk about the textures. That's why eating with your hands for young kids is so important because they're learning so much about how food is going to feel in their mouth before they put it in their, you know, before oh, they interesting touch and play and feel food. And then they'll be comfortable to eat it. So playing with your food is okay when you're a kid. Absolutely. Get it everywhere. I wish I had known that. I didn't know that. So we, you know, really poo-pooed that with our kids. Like, don't play with your food. Uh, but that's fascinating that that comes naturally to them. And as a parent, an uneducated parent, I tried to get them to not do that. Well, great. Thanks. Now I have mom guilt. <laughs> um, but, oh, I love, I love this. The, so the rule is we talk nicely about our food. So if I went to a restaurant with you, Becky, and I said, and you made me try something new and weird, right? And I was like, ooh, this feels weird in my mouth. And I'd say, I tell me more about that. I don't know what that we, that means because weird is not, that does tells me nothing about the food. What what does weird mean to you, right? Ah, so then I might say it's slimy. Is it slimy? Is mm -hmm. it, um, is it because it's got a really big flavor? Is it too bitter, too salty? So we can describe food all day long, but we're just gonna not connect quantify good and bad. I love that though, because instead of like automatically saying like, this is nasty, I can be like, this has a big taste. This has a big taste. I wonder if I could eat it a different way. Oh, oh, that's good. That even opens up more possibilities. Yeah. I wonder how, if I dip this into some ranch, if it would be, be more profitable for me that way. Mm -hmm. So a little bit less of a taste or a different taste. Oh my gosh. I love that. 
So this translates really well to literally everything else we do in recovery. Our thoughts and what we say has a huge effect on our behavior and the outcome. Um, that is so super important. Anything else you could say about, about that piece before we move to food chaining? I don't know if something else comes up, but. Okay. Okay. So what is food chaining? Food chaining is a system where you find a food that you like and we shape it thinking of like clay. You could think of clay, um, shaping it into another food that might either expand your palate or something that might be a little more nutritious. So for example, um, this is one that um, we often run into because example, uh, people often like, um, like McDonald's French fries, they're consistent <laughs> flavor and texture. Um, so it, they're just in there readily available. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they're not terribly healthy in any sense, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're giving you calories. That's what they're giving you, right? So how could we get that to something else that's more beneficial for someone's diet? So even a cubed roasted potato is gonna be so much healthier than a McDonald's French fry, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, cubed sweet potatoes, we could get there from McDonald's mm -hmm. French So if we think about, depending on how rigid the person is <laughs> within their variability, like some people I've worked with will only eat McDonald's French fries, but not Burger King or Sonic or, so if you're that rigid, then you're going to be working on the other French fries, even though that don't have variability either, right? Mm -hmm. Minus the packaging. The packaging is what's variable, really, and maybe the, the size or the oil. Right? Mm -hmm. So there is change. So you want to always think about small changes are changes. That's fine. A small change is a change. And change when you're learning to eat new things is good. So. Mm -hmm whatever small change you need to make to be successful. If you're making a change, we're going to count that as success and keep moving. Yes. Um, so you could go to different types of French fries. Then you could go to ones that you are, are frozen and packaged at your house and then take those same fries, but cut them into cubes before you cook them. Right. Oh, changing the shape because when you cook, it'll be a little bit different. And then going to make in your own fries, cubing, and then maybe you're moving into sweet potato fries. So you can see how that goes into a baked potato then becomes a mashed potato, right? So we're slowly changing the texture, the flavor. And so you don't have to go and say, I can eat, I can eat French. Some parents be like, you can eat potato, you eat French fries. Why don't you eat my mashed potato? Well, there's a lot of steps in between really. For someone that's a person, for someone that doesn't have a feeding disorder, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, but yeah, someone. that's fascinating. So somebody with really, really rigid rules could go from, if it's, you know, McDonald's French fries with ketchup, then maybe they do McDonald's French fries without ketchup. Then they do Wendy's French fries. Then they do Burger King French fries. Then they do homemade uh, frozen fries. Then they do homemade mom cut the frozen fries. And then they, you know, cube all of these different things that you could potentially eventually get to a cubed sweet potato for somebody that's a grown up and doesn't have such rigid rules. It could start with McDonald's French fries with ketchup and then go to McDonald's French fries without ketchup and then maybe jump to homemade fries and then a baked potato, right? Like less steps in between, but essentially 
the strategy is the same. You're just making those baby steps to get all the way to the healthier, more nutrient dense food. Because our body, it is typically any person, but it is in our bodies like to build off success. So if you jump too far and you're not successful, then you're most likely just to give up. So I'm okay with like, Hey, we're going through this chain and that's really easy and I'm successful. Well, then we don't have to hang out there very long. We'll try this next one. If that seems easy, then we're going to jump up, but I don't like to skip too many steps because if I take too big of a leap, that's, that's as if I'm designing a program, that's my failure, not their failure. Right. Because that's why I'm here is to help them to find out what they think they're going to be successful. What I think is going to be appropriate stretch on their anxiety. So this is another thing, um, moving forward. I want you to be a tiny bit anxious about the next step, but then be successful. So within your small bit of anxiety, not big anxiety, like when you could just put in your pocket, right? Um, you, then you're successful. And when you're successful after being anxious, that anxiety will go away. Oh, but that's so good. Stretching it. If, if, if it seems like I'm moving up and I'm not nervous at all about this new food, then that's not a move forward. That's a move, right? Neutral. Okay. That's fascinating. So what you're saying is having a small amount of anxiety is not, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing because once you make that step and you have that small success in the face of small anxiety, it's reassuring to you. Like, look what I just did. I can do. Yeah. It boosts the confidence. Yeah. And so once you are successful in doing that and be like, I did this before, I was successful. Then later when you're out in the world and doing this yourself, you're more likely to take those risks and trials out of your, what you feel most comfortable with because you've been successful before. Yeah. I've heard you say a couple of times throughout today that it is really important to celebrate those small wins. Um, do you think that's for everyone? For everyone. Yeah. And, um, someone on the outside might be defining them as small wins, but for you, it might, it's probably actually a big win. Mm, that's good. Love that. Okay. There's two more masking and fading. Let's talk about masking. And this one, I really want to hone in on so masking. Um, taste is a real thing. And people with some people have really hypersensitive, um, tasting like sensory system, right? They can taste the smallest amount of change, right? So expanding like fruits and vegetables are hard because like I said before, one fruit is not the next fruit is the next next fruit as far as flavor and texture. So masking is a way of finding something that I know that I like and I'm really comfortable with. And it's usually a sauce or a dip, honestly, right? Um, And using that as a carrier for this new food. So for young kids, you think of ketchup like for the really young ones, they like ketchup and mm-hmm. we're just going to give them lots of things. When, when we get, when parents give children ketchup, it's usually with French fries. Can we give our child ketchup with some carrots? They don't really care, honestly, with some snap peas, with some whatever, right? Mm-hmm. If they do ketchup, what do they like dipped in ketchup, right? And so that would be the idea of masking. We're putting the highly preferred flavor of ketchup onto the new food. So mm-hmm. it could be ranch, it could be guacamole, it could be uh, any food that's 
can be blended. Like a soup can be thrown in the blender if you really like the flavor and then it's a carrier food, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Masking is, or cooking, like if you like barbecue sauce, then you, when you're cooking, you're cook lots of things in a crock pot with barbecue sauce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, you're making the flavor, your highly preferred flavor, and then you're expanding the variety of things that you're cooking in that barbecue sauce. Yeah. And you also had given me two other examples of doing this with like smoothies or salads. I'd like to talk more about that. Okay. So, um, for smoothies, right. You, you might have a preferred smoothie that you, it could be a prepackaged smoothie and this kind of goes into fading. So masking and fading are very similar, right? So if I have a smoothie, uh, you know, I don't know that I don't endorse any certain brands, but if I had a like organs, well, that would be pretty, pretty broad palette. So if I had a like carnation instant breakfast, you know, powder that I put mm-hmm. in, I'm drinking that on a regular basis, that, that that's a pretty complete food, but it doesn't have any whole foods in it. Right. So to increase um, the foods that I'm willing to accept, we might start adding, and I, for my clients, I usually like, we're going to start with our smoothie that we like, and we're going to put one piece of spinach, one piece spinach in the smoothie and blend it up and drink it mm-hmm. that's just getting past that that cognitive barrier of spinach is gross I don't like spinach I don't eat spinach mm-hmm. and one piece of spinach you're not going to taste it you're not going to see it you're going to spell there's nothing it just is getting past that barrier of consuming it and like oh that was fine I didn't even notice it so we use a lot of language about and talking about the smoothie because it really was no change and then depending on their comfortability, we'll go to two pieces of spinach. And then once we get going, we can eventually get to like a big chunk of spinach. In our like smoothie. a whole cup. Because spinach obliterates and there's no texture. And you can hide, you can mask the flavor of spinach with an apple or banana really easy. Yeah. So what you're saying is big changes can often begin with one tiny piece of baby spinach. Spinach, absolutely. And so this is like salads. If you can... Um, find um, a salad dressing you like, then you can eat almost any salad because you can just taste like the salad dressing mm-hmm. and you can add foods in small amounts. I use a, like, you know, the large cheese grater um, a lot with vegetables. And so you can add, shred some carrots, shred some beets, shred some something, and just put a small amount in my salad and then slowly increase um, by fading increase the volume right but we always want to start small and be successful and then increase don't start with a big cup whole cup of beets that's gonna you're gonna fail Mm -hmm. that's so smart though the cheese shredder because you could add so like on one side of it you can add so much nutrient density to your salad by shredding in a couple different types of vegetables but just putting those little slivers in there even if it's a teeny tiny amount like you were saying can really help expose you to the new flavors in a really small way that helps you have those small successes, which builds your self-confidence, which tells you, I can do this. I can be a person who's moved from a primarily processed foods diet to a more healthy, complex, nutrient-dense diet, even though there's like a thousand steps in between, potentially, depending on the rigidity of the person, right? It is possible. Oh, absolutely possible right? Because our brain and our gut was actually built for variety. Oh, what do you mean by that? Our bodies work better when we have a wider variety of foods and generally digestion works better, right? 
Um, I'm not a dietitian, but some of the dietitians I work with that are working full with pediatrics um, could speak to this more, but I do know that sometimes they have, when they're working on weight gain, better results when they're able to add some whole foods besides just the complete formulas, they're complete. But if they are able to start adding some whole food blends to it, then um, babies sometimes grow better and put weight on better, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just love that. Cause when you said it, you know, the brain and the gut work better with variety. I always talk to my clients about how their, their gut, otherwise known as like the microbiome is like their own little garden. And if you're planting different seeds in there at the right time, and it's got the right nutrients in the soil, you have a much more beautiful complex garden that, and anybody in this space knows that your microbiome and your gut is so deeply connected to your mental health. So the more varied and foods that you're eating, the more seeds you're planting in your little garden, the more robust mental health you can have, you know, that's the way that I sort of envision what, what that statement that you just made. So, um, yeah, that's awesome. And then I'm not sure you really fully explained fading. Can you touch on that one just real quick? Um, in a sense of changing one flavor to another or Mm. changing texture to another, I like, um, Let's say I love, we could move from, let's put it in the sense of, I can drink water, but I can't drink milk, but I really need to drink milk because the doctor wants me to drink so much milk, right? Mm -hmm. So we start with fading of the flavor between the water and milk. So we start with milk. Let's just say, you know, four, eight ounces of milk and we put a teaspoon, I mean, of water and we put a teaspoon of milk in it. We drink that for three or four days. And then we move to a tablespoon and then we move, move, move and slowly, slowly fade the constant, fade out water and increase the milk. And I like to go three to four days of success before we're increasing the concentration. Um, because taste, it's usually because you have a hypersensitive taste, right? Mm. Taste is, you got to slowly introduce your brain to the change in the taste, right? So mm. that with fading could be also with like sauces. I don't eat up. I need to eat, you know, I, I don't know of an instance where you would need to eat barbecue sauce, but you could go from ketchup to barbecue sauce because they're completely different flavors, right? Yeah. Like eating one into the another. Um, does that make Yes. And I actually didn't know that that's what I was doing with my clients. We do this a lot with soda. So I have a lot of clients that just cannot seem to wrap their head around drinking the soda that they drink. And so what we do is we take plain old LaCroix or spark or plain sparkling water. And we just, we, I tell them, I'm like, literally just dump a couple sips of the soda out of the can or the cup and replace it with the bubbly water. You could do flavored or just plain. And then eventually we could get down to a place where their, their beverage is mostly sparkling water with just a little bit of that flavor of Coke or Pepsi or or Mountain Dew or whatever it is. And that massively reduces their intake of sugar and other chemicals and that sort of thing. So we've been doing that forever. I didn't know it was called fading. And then you can like for my clients that have had pain with swallowing, those people may tend to go to want more of a liquid diet or a really soft diet. So Mm. you can fade by like, instead of like eating a cracker, we're going to crumb up the cracker and slowly add it to a food like applesauce and then slowly increase the texture that way. Oh yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's a way to introduce, just like you said, to introduce to the brain, just that slightly different change so that the brain can sort of have it in more digestible bites. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. That's awesome. All right. Well, this has been so interesting. And I, I hope that people walk away from this conversation, um, for one learning more about ARFID, cause I think it is a fascinating, um, disorder and that we're hearing about it a lot more and it, which leads me to like all sorts of other questions of like, why is this becoming more of a thing? Has it always been around? And now they're just sort of learning to diagnose it or recognize it. I think it's really interesting, but I think that it speaks to this much bigger topic too, um, of just, if you have kids really changing the way, um, that you engage with them and introduce foods to them and the, you know, the concept of allowing them to play with their food and then translating all of that into our adult lives too. If you happen to be listening and you're like, Oh, I'm such a picky eater or things that Becky talked about the, the sensory issues, the touch, the smell, why does that stuff feel so overwhelming for me? I think it's important to sort of normalize a lot of that, but to help you not feel like if I if I am one of those people that has a lot of sensory issues, I'm just stuck here. These strategies that you gave us today are so useful to start implementing, to make those really tiny little incremental changes that you can celebrate, right? Cause that's such an important thing that you brought up and, and will help you to change the way that you think and speak about your food. I think I'm going to say, we talk nicely about our food for the rest of my life. Cause I just love that statement so much. And it's so applicable to everyone. So um, is there any other final thoughts that you would like to add about ARFID or anything else that you think would be relevant before I let people know how they can find you? Because you work for a hospital system, but you also have your own private practice. And I want to be able to share that with our listeners. Yeah. And I guess the only thing that I want to add is kind of reiterating the most important thing. Exposure, exposure, exposure is key, right? And it needs to be a successful exposure, right? Mm -hmm where you're stretching yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone, right? And then, mm-hmm. so that, that's key. Um, and then it's okay to take a little time and make a plan for yourself. You do not have to, you know, add 20 foods to your palate in a month, right? You could add 20 foods to your palate in a year and in a year's time, you're in a much better place. Mm-hmm. Look at one or two a month. Right. And that's completely appropriate. So set reasonable goals, but also set a goal. And how am I going to get there? Mm-hmm. Be successful. Right. Write it down. Yeah. That's fantastic. Sustainable change often takes a long time. And so that seems to apply to this scenario as well. And in recovery, we want to go big or go home. And we're always like all in or all out. And so it is an important reminder to let people know those teeny tiny little changes, um, they add up to, to huge change eventually, potentially. So, um, it's, it's great to just hammer down that point. Okay. So if people want to find you, your business is called thrive feeding therapy. It is based out of Denver. Uh, can you only see people in Colorado or can you see people out of state? have licenses in Missouri, Oklahoma, Nebraska, and Colorado currently. currently okay. Yeah. Okay. The website is thrivefeedingtherapy.com. And if you wanted to email Becky directly, it's Becky, B-E-C-K-Y at thrive feedingtherapy.com. All of that information will be in the show notes. Um, so, you know, maybe you have a, a kiddo with ARFID, um, or some of the other things we mentioned earlier that, um, you know, requires, uh, feeding therapy and Becky would be an amazing resource for that. So 
Um, thank you so much for being here. This has been so fun. I am a little bit obsessed with these strategies and now want to start using them and implementing myself, um, especially shredding stuff into my salad. So uh, thanks again for sharing all of your wisdom with us. And it's been great to see you. Hey friends, if you loved what you heard today, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. Post it on your social media, give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening from today, or give us a review. This really helps us to reach more people and give them hope that they too can reach optimal health and recovery. And for sure, head over to the Addiction Nutritionist website to sign up for our newsletter and check out Recovery U at www.theaddictionnutritionist.com. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you feel inspired today to recover well. Quick disclaimer, Nikki and I are not medical professionals in any way, shape, or form, and nothing on this podcast constitutes medical advice. It is purely for educational purposes only. Please consult your personal team of health professionals before making any changes to your diet, supplements, medication, or lifestyle. Thanks for listening, 